This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy! Hey, let's talk about you, the ID10T community events at ID10T.com, like Russ Stevens, a.k.a. Cool Movies Darth, who uh, has started a podcast called 90 for Chill, uh, which Russ says is dedicated to movies with a runtime between 74 and 99 minutes, the time frame that I feel is ideal. Russ, I could not agree with you more. That is a fantastic idea. Uh, Russ goes on to say there are times you need a cinematic fix but don't have time for the latest Scorsese masterpiece or offering from a comic book universe. There's also times when you know you need a conclusion to prevent a binge costing you a whole night. Um, my guests and I try to follow these guidelines as we chat up features that are definitely worth your time and are beyond easy to make time for. 90 for Chill, the podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms at 94chill.com and that's spelling out 90 uh, N-I-N-E-T-Y 4-F-O-R chill um, so there you go thank you so much for sharing Russ a uh, really great idea for a podcast events at id10t.com for everyone else little hands says it's time to rock and roll bring the noise Thank you for checking out 90 for Chill, the podcast with Cat Bus Russ. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ. You can get an idea of what future episodes of the podcast may involve by following me on Letterboxd. The username there is CMDarth. That's C as in cool, M as in movies, Darth as in a Sith Lord. And if you want to fill your house with the dulcet tones of the Cat Bus, you can ask your Amazon Echo or Google Nest device to play podcast by Cat Bus Russ. And this week, the poetic critic returns. She is fresh off her trip to Lombard, Illinois, for the annual TARDIS convention. We talk about our joint history with November, dare I say, Thanksgiving weekend conventions in Chicago. That's where it all started, for me at least, back in 1998. And where it has come from there. And then we go and really investigate my sister's quirkiness when it comes to children's entertainment. We're both 80s kids. So we talk about stuff we would have seen on Disney or Nickelodeon back in the 1980s. So we're talking about Dot and the Kangaroo. And then we're going to go into the, geesh, what was the MPAA thinking with the bear? So... Let's get the trauma started now. Who's this? This is a friend of yours playing a game. Playing a trick, are you, hey? A little trick on Rupert here. Funny, this, you know. Where is he? Doctor? I can't find him. Can you find him? Find who? Wally. Wally? He's nowhere in this book. It's not a Where's Wally one. Well, how would you know? Maybe you just haven't found him yet. He's not in every book. Really? Well, that's a few years of my life I've been eating back. All right, this is 90 for Chill Podcast, the Cat Bus Russ. 
This is your host, Cap Russ, and I'm joined uh, once again by the Poetic Critic. And our topic, as her suggestion, was quirky pre-90s um, kid stuff. Kid shows, basically before Nicktoons and before Disney Channel really became the... Just, just Disney Channel, the days when it was just the Disney Channel yeah. as opposed to just, just Disney Channel. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, before that, uh, she was recently at the TARDIS, uh, convention up in Chicagoland, Lombard, I believe. Chicago TARDIS in Lombard, yes. All right, yeah. This summer. Yeah, no, I used to, uh, do, uh, have an annual wrestling tournament, uh, kick off the new year there back in high school, the, uh, Dvorak at Lombard East High School, so... Um, with all, with all that bollocks out of the way, I go and, uh, bring up TARDIS just because this was essentially the 25th anniversary of the first con I think we went to. Um. Visions 98? The first one we went to together, yes. Yes. Um, which was, I mean, it definitely wasn't, uh, Chicago Comic Con, which I think would be the big one at that point, but... Uh, it was at the Hyatt Regency, so eventually I'd say, you know, with the rise of Wizard World and such, this this was the Rosemont show for a while. Well, no, Chicago Comic Con was still the Rosemont show, because that was technically what became Wizard World, if I'm correct. Yeah. Okay, well, enough bollocks. It's um, pre-C2E2, at least. Mm-hmm. There you go. So, um, and that was a... Uh, just a convention, science fiction convention of the time. Uh, we ate lunch with uh, Kent McCord on Sunday. Uh, and uh, let's see, had lunch another day. It was at the Hyatt um, over in Rosemont. Really nice hotel. Um, I mean, you can usually just say that off the Hyatt's anyhow. But I digress. Um, unless somebody knows about the uh, Hyatt place in Champaign, that's actually... A hotel where they te- treat people with respect. We just don't usually have that in Champagne. Um, uh, uh So that was a uh, regular science science fiction con. I didn't really get around to a lot of guest panels and such. Just got a few autographs. Gave Tracy Scroggins a photo. I only knew her from Highlander. I did not know her from be it Dallas or Dynasty, whatever drama she was on in the eighties. Um, Got that dude from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who I think is canceled. Uh, autograph from my little sister. And, eh, you know, for her sake, she doesn't have that. I have it. Nicholas Brendan, something, some bollocks like that name. Like, he wasn't Seth Green. He wasn't, like, he was way down the totem pole. Um, and... Something, though, that uh, I noticed we don't really have at cons anymore, like viewing rooms. Actually, you know, that's one thing about Chicago TARDIS is that they do still have a viewing room. Well, the Chicago TARDIS is a Doctor Who convention. Yes. It's not about, uh, let's let's bring in as many nerds as possible. No, we want the nerd elite. No, I don't think that's a fair way of putting something like Chicago TARDIS. It is Doctor Who specific, but we do, they do have smaller, like, uh, secondary room panels where we actually do talk about 
what's going on with your, your DC and your Marvel and your Star Wars. I went to some of those panels this year. Okay, well, no, it's nice about that. Uh, but how many chainsaw, uh, Mr. Chainsaws did we have? And we did not have any Mr. Chainsaws. So, as I say, the... It's the ner- it's the nerdy elite, and then their minor nerdy stuff. I think that's a rather thoughtless way of putting it. That these smaller conventions are, you know, they're they're the ones where people get to know each other. Okay. And mm. Guests and attendees get to know each other in ways they wouldn't at other cons. All right. Oh. Still, just 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 saying it. Like, uh, like, I guess the thing and I wanted to bring up about, um, like, Doctor Who, and let's go, really, to the revival versus the original. Now, like, oh, there's Tom Baker, Rory would point out, and that, no, that's the crazy captain who doesn't believe in maps from Blackadder. Like, I got all my, uh, goofy Brit- British, British guys from other sources in the 80s. Uh, I mean, the other policeman's ball when Sylvester McCoy was the human bomb. That, that, that's my stuff. That's my introduction to British stuff. Like, I wouldn't know Stephen Fry if it wasn't for Black Adder or, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Hugh Laurie. Basically, I think the Black Adder is what the Doctor Who revival is. Like, oh, these are cool people. Christopher Eccleston should have probably tried to stick it out a little longer than just one season. Look, we all understand why Eccleston left when he did. Well, I mean... He did not have an easy time with it that first season. A lot of it had to do with the guy in charge of directing. And he has done stuff for the series since. It's just not on television. Mm. You see, that's another thing about... a regional, more specific con like Chicago Targus is that it's pretty important for American, you know, fans who are not from the home country. It's not always easy to get the kind of expanded universe material that is produced in huge amounts in the UK, such as the big Finnish audio dramas. Mm. Since, uh, well, obviously, the they're Finnish. Since the turn of the millennium, they've been doing original audio plays. Well, some of them actually adapt like books or comic mm. strips from the that have been part of the expanded universe before. But the big finish uh, hook is that they feature mostly the original actors, or in certain cases, decent impersonations thereof as needed. And well, I'm sure you put a taser to. Pertly, you can get some lines. Okay, now, what I'm saying is, there there are hundreds of these now, and they are loose. They are canon, unless explicitly stated to be like an Elseworlds story. And there's a fair deal of those, or it's contradicted by the show itself. That this is basically a loose canon that most most significantly uh, pretty much all of Paul McGann's material besides the TV movie in one short is just the big finish audio line. 
he's been doing that for years. And what has Eric Roberts' involvement been with? Hmm. Well, he's actually reprised his take on the master several times for Big Fetish now. Okay. Wow. He said they they like the masters get their own box sets. At this point, that they often do these as box sets, like three or four different one hour to two hour stories in the package. So pretty much all the masters have the living masters have participated mm. at this point. We even have some audio exclusive ones, mm. like Derek Jacoby was another one who only appeared once on screen as the master in uh, late in David Tennant's second season before regenerating into John Sim, who is the main master in the revival up to that point. But there's a whole series of audios he's done about the previous adventures of that particular master. John Hurt did some audios as the war doctor before his death. Mm. Mm. Uh, uh, Pretty much, so... Pretty much the only doctor, uh, living doctors who have not participated at this point, although they have allowed, you know, like uh, impersonators in certain special cases, are Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi. Because mm. uh, Tennant did, has done a bunch. Uh, you know, Eccleston has done some. And uh, Tom Baker, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Spuss McCoy, Paul McGann have all regularly done audios for the range. Mm. So, um, but just to bring it back to my observation, like, really all I did was go on the shop floor, buy uh, fan-subbed VHS cassettes. Uh, Do you have the Highlander 2 MST3K somewhere? Not anymore, Uh. but... Fan, that old fan production. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, with all that uh, stated, it's still, like as I say, mostly all I did was do the viewing rooms, otherwise. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't room, really viewing see... Viewing rooms were important back then, and even now... Well, as I was saying, I just don't see them at, say, Fan Expo or uh, C2E2. Well, no, because... I mean, aside from the alien viewing room I had for to watch four of the uh, 40th anniversary shorts. Well, that's part of it. Because uh, YouTube and other services are so widespread now, as well as, you know, streaming, uh, it is a lot easier for material produced in one country to get to another if there's any kind of demand for it. Mm. But even with Doctor Who... There are issues with some stuff that's being produced in the UK that, for whatever reason, doesn't make it over here. Such as, one thing they did for the 60th anniversary, which was last week, which meant that, yeah, the the TARDIS convention took place, you know, as kind of a big 60th anniversary game thing, uh, was they brought over the bumpers they did for some vintage serials. They created some new bumper segments called Tales from the TARDIS where they brought back some of the original actors from like going as far back as the early 1960s. Brought back some of the actors as their characters looking back on the events of the story. And the, like they're on they're on this TARDIS set and they're doing it all in character. And they that that has not been brought over here as yet, probably because there are some rights issues regarding vintage Doctor Who streaming as opposed to contemporary Doctor Who streaming. But 
they we there was a screening that was specifically so we could watch these segments. Uh, as well, we also got to see catch up on the Children in Need comedy short that featured David Tennant that ran about a week before his first episode, new episode, which is a riff on the creation of the Daleks. And that one can be found on YouTube, but just so everybody could catch up on it, because we have a lot of older people, you know, come to these conventions. Uh, they know. ran that too. In fact, the big thing on Saturday night, which is usually the mask, the uh, costume contest, the mm. the pro level cosplayer contest. Uh, instead, we had we they were allowed to do a screening, public screening of the first of the Tenant specials, which had premiered earlier that day in the UK and on Disney Plus, and they. they and. They had the direct, because the director of that episode, Rachel Talalay, happened to be one of the guests at this convention. She'd also directed pretty much all of Peter Capaldi's finale episodes for his three seasons and all of his Christmas shows. And they, one of the panels when she did, the, the previous day when she did a live commentary on probably the most beloved of the Capaldi episodes, Heaven Sent. Mm. Did a lot of commentary on that, and there is something about seeing these in a group setting that's a lot of fun. Also, the video room is just a nice place to decompress. It's mostly just uh, stuff from the main series now, but they tend to mix in some stuff that uh, was it hadn't hadn't been on that had, what hadn't yet been brought out on DVD in this country mm. sometimes, like the various spin-off shows. Or in this case, this year we had a few, because one of the guests was Carol Ann Ford, who was one of the very first companions, uh, Susan, the Doctor's granddaughter. Origins still a mystery, canonically, to this very day. <laughs> I don't want to go into that. I've listened to way too many Star Wars podcasts where, yeah, that Jedi. Uh, <laughs> well, so. But they featured some of her movies from early 1960s, like The Day of the Trippets, and they mixed those in. Okay. Alrighty. Well, alright, that's enough of that. I mean, as I'm trying to stop talking about Jedi's. It just, there's just some things like that are so ridiculous that what you want to say you want to say it with the worst curse word of all um, to describe it so we will stop that it's silly so but with that said John Cleese ever stopped by a TARDIS uh, yeah okay because I'm just saying he did a cameo right yeah he did a cameo right. no we usually um, the guest list usually I'm just saying includes... he was in Illinois most of November because yeah. I know he did the Civic Center, and I know he did UIS. Yeah, but, uh, no. Our, the main guests we get at Chicago TARDIS are mostly classic series performers. Usually we get some mix of Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, or Paul McGann as, like, the top-tier guests. Yeah. In fact, we had the first three this year all came over. Oh, right. And 
And this is what I mean by saying that there are ways to get relationships. You have a rapport with the guests and the attendees in a way you wouldn't get at other cons when they come so frequently. They also had a few companions from those eras. And uh, sometimes we do get performers from the contemporary series, but it's not always easy. Like, Jen, we tried, they tried twice for, at least twice for Jenna Coleman, but she was so busy that she, they always ended up overbooking her and she had to drop out. But on the other hand, we did get uh, Pearl Mackey, who played Bill Potts in Capaldi's final season. And that, and we've had a few of, we've had minor performers, we've had guys who played monsters or who, did certain guest spots. So Sam Rockwell's from Galaxy, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, sort of like that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, okay. So let's get in. So we're talking about old TV. Let's jump into the, so the 60s, 70s stuff. Yes, I know. Tom Baker, Sylvester McCoy, Colin Baker, Peter Saderson. You know, autistic info drops. That's how they show affection, I've read. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, let's get back to the uh, 80s with uh, a couple of movies. I mean, I'm sure she's going to bring up some other examples. I didn't necessarily remember Daphne Kangaroo, and boy, I'm kind of glad. Um, but I do remember Dot and a Whale. And yeah. so it was an in- it's an interesting Interesting animation style. So Dot and the Kangaroo is the first successful or profitable uh, Australian animated feature, I believe, is what I read on Wikipedia. More or less. Yeah. It's not like they had much of an industry until the 70s. But this goes back to the time as Rory also watches um, a YouTube series based around trying to break down yearly or show by show uh, Nickelodeon beef while we were growing out. Yeah. Well, it's going to go all the way. Right. The sh- channel's history. Yes. I, I just can't think of the... Uh... It, the channel is called Paparina. They've had a variety of different shows over the years, and they've and some are still ongoing, such as a retrospective of the Goosebumps books... Uh, they did cover Doctor Who for a while, mm. but I think that's fallen by the wayside. Is the but the signature project, Knickknacks. Yeah, that's what I thought it was called. Yeah, Knickknacks is, as they put it, a show-by-show retrospective of every show that has ever aired on Nickelodeon, going back to its origins in 1979, as part of a service called regional cable service called Hume. Mm-hmm. And this does include both shows that were created for the channel and shows that were, you know, picked up from elsewhere. Right. So long as they aired as part of the regular Nickelodeon or Nick Jr. Yeah. programming blocks. Mm-hmm. They do not cover Nick at night shows unless they actually got worked into the Well, so the monkeys program. essentially. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah, they don't cover Nick at night. They only briefly summarize Nick at night right. when they get to the start of a new year to cover. Okay. Well, when it comes to Nickelodeon, I really don't. Uh, aside from the pinwheel lineup on Sundays or the weekends, I don't really think of movies there. 
I think maybe that was where I saw one of the, the Jennifer Connelly Snow White, but she did one, right? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Let's see, oh, you're, let's see you're getting confused. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're going to need to pause. Uh, I got a podcast friends who say that you always do the Chuck Willery. We'll be back in two and two. <laughs> I just don't get that since it's podcasting. bush of Australia, using only my legs. When they let me into Australia, they must have been down to the dregs. Oh, this is not a good place for it. Hello. Oh, hello. I'm Dot. I know your voice. Ah, you're Dot and I'm Dotty. <laughs> right, now I know who you are because I play the part of the platypus in your film, Dot and the Kangaroo. Platypus? Surely you mean only with... only need with... No, no, I remember. Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. Yes, that's what I mean. That's that's exactly what I mean. And it goes like this. Hey. I'm an Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. He's an Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. Uh, I just said that. I beg your pardon. What's the matter with you? It's your turn now. Thank you. We are Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. And when you see us first, you're in the quite a shock It's really quite extraordinary. You won't believe your ears. We've been living in Australia now for 60 million years. Well, well, Stanley, Stanley, so give it three hearty cheers. Give it a ring, give it a ring, the ornithorhynchus The ornithorhynchus. Diana Rick. Okay, that's who I was looking for. I knew knew somebody uh, who dealt with Muppets was did a Snow White that I saw on Nickelodeon. I think in the eighties. No, it was on the Disney Channel. Well, what the hell is ever shown on Nickelodeon? Well, they have done multiple episodes relating to what. The uh, host has come to term as package shows, like special delivery. Okay, all right, yeah. I get that now. Yeah, okay, so basically beyond the package shows, Nickelodeon was just like, let's entertain the kids when they get home from school, and they'll be doing stuff on the weekends. Disney Channel not really doing a lot of original content, dare I say, in the um, 80s. Well, it depends on what you considered, what you would consider interesting or important. Mm. Looking back at very early Disney Channel, it was true it was largely a lot of stuff from the back catalog early on. Which I preferred, personally. But But as well, they did a lot of original shows relating to stuff like Epcot Center. Oh, yeah, no. Developments. The making of Captain EO. And that's where I learned about Francis Ford Coppola. See, it's important. You need you have to learn that about that sometime. <laughs> well, the kids have to learn about tech war sooner or later. <laughs> well, that was WWE when uh, William Shatner did a monkey flip with Jerry Lawler. But um, the thing was that in the nineteen eighties, uh, not just. Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel, 
which were aimed primarily at children and family audiences, but HBO, Showtime, syndication in general, they had to fill out the spare hours when kids might be watching something. And in the 1980s, when cable and VHS were very new things, this, at the same time, Disney was not the monolith we know it as today. And no other studio had ever found, had ever deliberately cultivated a niche in family entertainment the way Disney had. So none of them really had a go-to library to work from children's entertainment, except uh, animated shorts, which, you know, thrived on television back then. Mm. There, there's an excellent Knickknacks episode when they get to when Looney Tunes were featured on the network. There's a whole video that just talks about the history of Looney Tunes on television and how they were packaged and repackaged over the years. Oh, you mean so we couldn't see the uh, Wish I Was and Dixie and Blackface and Elmer Fudd and uh, Bugs Bunny? Well, they do talk about things like edits and yeah. such. If I, I, think what, that, I think that may have been a blockbuster rental. I think Nickelodeon may have had their crap together at least that far. At the same time... So when they started panning and yeah. scanning out guns, that's... Yeah, they talk about that in the video. There are whole video series out there, as the host mentions. If you want to see stuff about the whole history of Looney Tunes, there are plenty of places on at YouTube that just do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As far as documentaries go. Yeah. But my, only, my only problem with the Looney Tunes is right now is why did they give Bugs yellow gloves for the most recent? Now, going into... So going into the 80s, pretty much nobody owns this new Wild West territory and which, unlike the real Wild West, didn't have anybody previously living in it. So pretty much anything is fair game. Now, no, I don't if know. You, now especially... I'm just imagining Native Americans protecting satellite dishes. Sorry. So if you're trying to fill, let's say, 14 hours a day at least yeah. with children's programming because uh, Disney Channel originally, a lot of early cable like HBO and Disney Channel did not initially run 24-7. They would usually have some point around maybe, it would range from 8 to 10 p.m. to what the East Coast, where you, you just go off until about 6 a.m. And Nickelodeon, of course, generally would end its broadcast day at 8, would run 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. Right, and then you'd get, have at least a good six hours of Nick at night. Well, yeah, but they didn't originally do mm. that. Again, Nick Nicks covers some of the stuff that they used to fill that time prior to that. Mm. Okay. It, you learn a lot of just about the whole nature of the early cable industry from those videos. Mm. They're very well researched. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in any case, you're trying to fill a lot of time. And that means you're probably... 
And if you don't have a huge library to build on, you're going to have to borrow from elsewhere. Especially something like Nickelodeon that what was originally just a loss leader for what they for more expensive add-ons like movie channels. Yeah. So the you try to find what's cheap and easy to put up in air. And often that means you're gonna look into inter foreign programming, uh Anything that might be vaguely kid-friendly. This was about in both VHS and early cable and syndication. Did that a lot. Mm. Okay, so... Obviously, Ozzy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Um, and, uh... I mean, so... I, I also remember a lot on Disney Channel. I know it was on the Disney Channel, Unico. Yes. Anime. That's like the first anime I really got to know after Voltron. Yeah. Because mom wouldn't let us rent Robotech tapes. Oh, she wouldn't? Or it's... It, it was weird. There was there was a... There was like a boundary where mom, I think, probably heard, oh, there might be boobs. <laughs> or something. But yeah, no, she didn't really... Like, I... Or maybe you know, hand it to dad and like, eh, this kind of seems a little. This kind of seems a little more intense than uh, He Man and the Masters of the Universe. Mm-hmm. So, eh, perhaps if they had, I think no, anything about it. Robotech didn't really have a lot of cats. Like, you know, if they had a cringer, maybe things would have been cool. Um. So, um, uh, with uh, you know, Unico. But uh, don't, you know, I we we'd stick in that was pretty some pretty dark stuff at times. Yes. Um, can't say that about dot dot and the kangaroo, but another feature we'll talk about. Oh boy, the darkness. Um, or at least the darkness I perceived. Yeah. But um, yeah, dot and the kangaroo. Um, honestly, this vibe just recently listening to um, the Jonathan Livingston Siegel episode of. Uh, how did this get made? I guess that probably refers more to the second feature we're definitely going to chat about. Um, just about, I don't know, the natural elements. So the animation is, there's no backgrounds drawn in Dot and the Kangaroo. It's animation put across photos or even video or film. Yeah, or film footage. Yes. Yes. This... Dot the Kangaroo was an early HBO staple, mm. and eventually, it was made in 1977, mm. and eventually made its way over to Disney Channel, along with the... I mean, there were eight of these movies, correct? Uh, I can double check. I mean, I... There were at least eight Dot yeah. movies over the years, and the history of... The uh, studio that made them, Yorm Gross Film Studios, is itself pretty interesting. Yeah, there were eight sequels. Eight sequels, ish. Yeah, they they went up all the way through nineteen ninety four. Although the last one was only released in Australia, and but most of them were made over nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty seven. Mm. But the dot, 
first movie is simply an adaptation of an Australian children's novel. Yes. Uh... Sort of a, sort of a, what, from what I can tell from the film, is sort of like an Australian version of something like The Jungle Book. Right, it's um, Ethel Ped- Pedley was the, uh, yeah, author. the author. And I don't know, maybe I need to actually go and read Lewis's Carol's uh, Alice in Wonderland. As I say, this is Australia where all of the animals make it look like you've gone through the uh, looking glass. And then when you bring up the concept of the bunyip, yeah. and that's kind of like a Jabberwocky. Yeah. Apparently so. that when you talk about uh, Australian kids talking about stuff that scared them as a kid, the bunyip sequence in this movie is often brought up. I don't think I'm that spooky. But uh, just another song to make sure we get to seventy-seven minutes. Well, that's a, you see this a <laughs> lot in seventies animation in general, no matter where it's from. Mm. To get the movie up to feature length, there's there's gonna be a lot of songs. Right, right. Um, but Don Kangaroo is interesting in that it. I guess I not only because of the style, but because it is the thing about international children's films I've found is that they do not only do they not have the slickness of our Hollywood counterparts, especially got, yeah, of this some, era. Right, I've got some thoughts there. Um, in a sense, this kind of style, if you remember uh, people who've watched Pulp Fiction, whatever that uh, cartoon... Uh, Clutch Cargo. Yes, that... Uh, oh, jeez, again. Well, Bruce Willis, as a kid, mm-hmm. was watching. And then you go back to 2001 with uh, Super Troopers and the Johnny Chimpo character. Oh, what do we have on this Johnny Chimp? This John Chimpo? Johnny Chimbo, it's cool. it's like cool cheap animation. It's a, a animation from Afghanistan. Yeah, it's Afghanimation, which is the same thing. Movie Mouse. Now, obviously, that's mm-hmm. insulting to what Dot and the Kangaroo is, um, but yes, just to state the uh, cheapness that you get with projects like the. I mean, uh, granted that um, show you mentioned was that a domestic show. Cargo. Yeah. Very much so. Okay, so uh, the bad things we encourage. Americans suck. Um so yeah, it's a but the the animation is cute throughout, uh, akin to the I thought to the nineteen seventy nine, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which mm-hmm. I've discussed on this. I do have a DVD of it. Right. Um or Family Guy in a lot of sense, and I got more comments about that. Um, but there's, there's bits with the animation and how it's done, like, initially, you knew where they were probably rushing scenes and such, like, oh no, she's gonna outrun the, she's gonna outrun the video, the film, (laughs) film, we can't go and just, we don't have anything to plug in front of her. George Lucas did it better with Jabba and Han in the special edition at many points in this film. Um, and I do think the POV shots fail, just as a concept. And we can only paint so much black foreground, essentially, in a lot of bits. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the, what's interesting about internet foreign children's films is that they were often working around huge limitations, especially if they try to be animated. Uh, you try and look at UK films that try to extensively use animation around this time, like The Water Babies. 
which was another one that was kind of a staple of Disney Channel and syndication for many years. And you talk about, again, we'll get to the more disturbing stuff, but um, I could pretty much think on Disney, uh, did we get Watership Down on Disney or no. HBO? Watership Down would have aired on HBO. Okay, but I'm just saying, we still got this stuff, like, that Mommy and Daddy didn't realize, well, there's no boobs. <laughs> like, again, the anime line. Um, yeah, that we got and probably traumatized a lot of people. Dot is not going to traumatize anybody. And what's interesting is that, and I remember very well many of the sequels that aired on Disney Channel. Yeah. Like, I, one of the reasons I brought up this film was I wanted to get you into sort of this frame of mind, and that was, and Don the Kangaroo was available on Tubi. I think it's fallen into the public domain in this country. Yeah, I think it's also on Pluto. If yeah. I... But, um, but the sequels are interesting because they're, that they tend to shift back and forth with how anthropomorphized the animals are. Yeah. Like, in, they, and how some of them are much more slapstick and some of them are much more melancholy than others, especially Dot and the Whale. Yeah. Which is incredibly melancholy for a children's animated feature. Well, from and we, the get, 80s. we get some weird stuff. Now, you can't necessarily tell what time frame uh, yeah. Dot and the King. The, the, the novel is in 1898, I believe. Yeah, the, no- the novel was written at the end of the 19th century. Yeah. And all the sequels are modern tracks. I'm just making sure yeah. I'm on They're that. They're all pretty. Yes. Weird. It's very, there's really no continuity, per se. Okay, all right. There is some a loose thread that goes into the. Like, both of the first two sequels, which had a fair deal of American exposure on the Right, VHS, I mean, the, the bunny immediately popped, uh, Dot and the Bunny immediately yeah. popped up as, like, no, like, I, oh, I slept, uh, slept, I don't like watching, I don't like what the autoplay could come <laughs> on. Yeah. Uh, I, I still haven't seen that one. But they all, but it also deals with the same issue of finding the kangaroos Joey, is mm-hmm. also the plot of Around the World with Dot, the first sequel. They're basically two different continuities. Uh, okay. Around the World with Dot, which in this country is usually known as Dot and Santa Claus because of how it's set up. Mm. Although it's not especially Christmassy film, is interesting. Just for uh, one thing that they tend to shift back and forth on is. Uh, whether or not Dot is represented as a live-action character going into it. Yeah, I, I do recall scene, that. In the, yeah, in, in this one, she starts as live-action, and there's this uh, friendly bush ranger who steps in to help her. Okay, there's nothing friendly about the bush. I'm going to just say that. Let's, <laughs> let's, this, is, this is my biggest problem with the feature, again. <laughs> and, and then you go to the first big musical number oh, with this no. guy. Oh, God, bollocks. All the, all the goofiest things you could imagine in, Aus- in Australia, you get that in just that one number alone. <laughs> okay. They are very wildly Australian movies, well, let's face it. Well, I'm thinking about the, uh, the Joey. He's like a friendly park ranger who comes and he... And they basically imagine their way into flying around the world with him as Santa Claus so they can track down the Joey. And they visit a bunch of different countries, and we get some ethnic stereotype. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> um, especially, especially when this is really sensitive stuff. Um, but uh, thinking about the Joey. The, so, and 
I'll, I'll back go back a little bit, but uh, so Dot is a. We start the film with Dot crying in the bush because she got lost after um, she, she. I think she was chasing some little animal, which I don't know. This is natural selection. You don't chase anything in the bush, uh, but basically she loses her way. Uh, a little red kangaroo finds her, gives her the root of understanding mm-hmm. so she can communicate with the animals. And there's a good bit where it's like, no, you don't want to eat too much of that. <laughs> what, you can learn, know too much? Yeah, it's going to make you sad. And like, damn right. Damn right. Um, I don't know. It's, it also made me think of, what would you rather deal with, the root of understanding or the babble fish? <laughs> I think the mammalfish would be slightly easier. Okay. But, uh... So... But the Joe... So, this red kangaroo had lost her joey, and she's been searching for it. Very much like, uh... I don't know. I don't... The Walking Dead, uh, when... Um... Trying to protect, uh... Well, season, season two ends up with the, uh... Child being a zombie in a barn. Uh, type scenario for uh, the uh, Joey situation. Um, so to get around, uh, the dot gets to ride in the Joey's in the in the kangaroo's pouch, and we have to hear this song three times. The, in the in around the world with dot, the in the opening ten minutes, they basically do an extended flashback to the early run of this movie, so you get to see the whole so- that whole song again. And it's a cute little song, but yeah. how many Australian kids yeah, it's, it's tried basically... to jump in the pouches <laughs> yeah. of kangaroos? Yeah, don't, don't try this at home, kids. Thank God, thank the gods for Family Guy taking the piss out of that. <laughs> hey, look, Lois. <laughs> I'm Rue. <laughs> Which is why I brought up, go back to the, the animation style of being akin to Family Guy. Yeah. I can see Dot be, this being the origin, the or, true origin story of Lois. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, other things about that is that Dot was, Dot got lost after she wanted to grab the ideal grass for all, for their pet, for their rabbits they were probably raising. And, uh. Yeah, no, they don't like any grass will do, Dot. No, they like the gully grass. <laughs> Either way, they, and Rory brought up the, spoke to me when I brought this idea up to her about invasive species and that the rabbits aren't the worst thing. But this is still Australia, <laughs> the story of Australians ruining their country. We're attempting to. Because then they're going to blame the kitties. And then we'll get into my, let's quit picking on the kitties when we get to the next feature. Um, so yeah, the songs are there, I think, just to make it feature length. I don't need the duck song. I don't need the... And when I'm like, would Ethel Pedley approve? That's why I say I gotta really read the Lewis Carroll to see, like, how do you really write dance numbers? And, like, do we need the dance numbers with the, the cranes? Um, so, yeah. Well, think of you know, Disney does that kind of filler all the time. Well, yeah, but they usually go and bastardize the books right away. That's true. Yeah. Have you ever seen the honest trailers for they did for the 1967 Jungle Book? No. That's pretty good, because they come down pretty hard on that movie. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, Don't Need the Duck song. Awful singing and speaking cast comparison in this feature. Like, Willy Wagtail. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Willy Wagtail. You can only pay attention to it. I'm people. That's how I have. <laughs> like, the ducks, everything. And I don't think the Outback was really that dangerous. We have the snake scene with the cockatoo, um, but that's like, dude, just kill the freaking. I pull to establish myself, and then platypuses, which were were kind of cool. Honestly, I'll give the they didn't deserve a musical number, but I will give the platypuses some uh, props. Um, I think they had good animation on the Aborigines. Don't know why they were purple. Yeah, that's that's dated, but you think of the system nineteen seventy seven. Yeah. <laughs> that's about as sensitive as you're gonna get. Yes, yeah. Um <laughs> But again, that kind of speaks to also the way that American kids films, you know, they do not know how to slow down. No. no. Foreign kids movies, they know when to take it easy and they know how to appreciate a moment or really explore the environment they're in. And I think that's part of the point of the dot movies, when you think about it, is you're appreciating this big environment around. They have very strong environmental themes in general. Yeah. I still can't it's, get behind this, behind dot. I mean, she's this daft, dense dot. I don't think the slipper would really work for adults. Um, no. It, it, it is very much a children's film. Okay. But I find it an intriguing one. Oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm not saying... Movie, but yeah. uh, if you're really fascinated, it, it has that important place in the fascinating history of Australian cinema. Because you have the famous Australian new wave of the 70s, but there's a whole other world of exploitation films and early animation if you've ever seen the documentary not quite hollywood they mm. talk about the ozploitation industry and yeah. that, that movie's a lot of fun it's the same guy directed the wonderful canon documentary electric Boogaloo. Mm. and we'll get to canon in a little bit yes but uh, uh so. yeah so i was trying to that's an in way to the kind of kids movies that you would see on basic cable in the early days some others that Disney Channel had included, uh, well, they had the Unico films and other films produced by Sanrio's animation company. They, mm. they had a film unit for a while. Sanrio, of course, is the house of the Hello Kitty, effectively, though. But in the late 1970s and early 80s, they were making some real inroads into producing films. They were mostly animated features. And they had an eye on the American market. The first one, I believe, was one called The Mouse and His Child, which is basically trying to thread the needle between American-style and Japanese-style animation. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have the Unico adaptations of one of Osamu Tezuka's uh, lesser-known characters in... But also, they did a stop-motion feature called Nutcracker Fantasy, yeah. which is a fairly faithful adaptation of E.T.A. Hoffman's original Nutcracker and the Mouse King story. And it, the animation they employed there involved some 
let's clear a little bit some of the people that Rankin Bass outsourced to for their famous stop-motion specials. So it looks pretty much like one of those. Mm. But it's very di- much more lyrical and darker fairy tale story. Mm. I mean, the mice look, may look cute, but they're pretty nasty mm. in this. Well, that's the truth and about mice. Also, because, again, they have not in the American market, the English la- I've seen the English language dub. But that was a professional app. Columbia Pictures distributed these films in theaters and on video. I'm thinking that's because they had a minor success importing the anime adaptation of Jack and the Beanstalk in 1976. Mm. And, well, you remember seeing that one? We saw that in Movies in the Park once? Yeah, vaguely. But, yeah, that was another uh, early cable staple if you were trying to show kids movies. Mm-hmm. And... So the English dub on Nutcracker Fantasy is very good. Uh, it's got Christopher Lee, Roger Dowell, uh, Melissa Gilbert, Ava the Boar. Mm. If, if there are not, there are a lot of attempts to try and put the Nutcracker's actual Nutcracker story on film. I think this might be the best one, as opposed to attempts to just adapt the ballet. Right. But it's very intriguing if you like that kind of animation. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of final notes to run through on uh, Dot. So, you know, we get home, we get home the... Think, presuming Dot is dead. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying the gray hair on Jessie, her mother, implies they just couldn't make another one. And, oh, the beating Dot deserves. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. The father nearly dies trying to do this, and you're just wondering. You just, you know, makes me really want to go and try to remember the the Red Kangaroo Pouch song again. <laughs> just to rub it in. Oh, what were you? I, I was writing. <laughs> but, um, okay. So, yes. Yeah. What's interesting is that the animation company is still around. Ah, that and, is interesting. Well, yeah, it's under a different name now, of course. Merge, mm. you know, your mergers, your acquisitions, but it's known as now known as Flying Bark Productions, and they do a fair deal of they've done a fair deal of shows and TV programs over the years, but among the shows they do now is they handle stuff like. Uh, the current Marvel cartoons like What If and Moon Girl and Dinosaur, okay. they handle both shows. Oh, yeah. They're doing the Stranger Things Tokyo f- series for Netflix. Mm-hmm. So they're still around. And they did a lot of... It's interesting because in the in the early days when it was Yoram Gross Film Studios, it was a... The founder was Polish. But he oh, yeah, no, I knew, I knew that. Uh... But some of the other films he did, he did... There are some films that were made around the same time as the Dot films, but they were more serious, although they used similar style. Of you put the animation over the live background, like and the thing is though, because Don the Kangaroo was the one that got was the hit, that when they got imported for the American market, they'd be given much cuter retitles, such as 1979's The Little Convict which is a story about a, about a little, little 
little boy who was brought on over to Australia in a British convict ship and back in the day. Okay, well, the Australians yeah. can kind use Kind of a Dickensen, Dickensian. Uh, as they say, as long as the Australians change the name of it, because I know we can't use that word to refer to Australians. Yeah, yeah, it's a Dickensian story. It was called the Little Convict. In this country, it's known as Toby and the Koala. Oh, okay, all right. So, and then there's Sarah. Just, just, just remember, people, convict is their word. And I will also say that Australia is not a real country. I keep arguing this with my trivia group, and I think I got half of them on my side. And then there's uh, Sarah, which it, from 1982, which is about a little girl who is surviving on her own in the German forest during the Second World War and befriends some animals, but... Trying to, and tries to figure out a way to destroy a Brit tra- Nazi transport bridge. <laughs> this is known as Sarah and the Squirrel in this country. <laughs> but they did. But they well, like doing just, serious dramas with the this technique. Well, that just just tells me Christoph Waltz was right in um, in uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, if you see the, you know. The difference between a rat and a, a rat and a squirrel. Yeah. Would you would you invite a rat in for a cup of for a saucer of milk? But that, you even shave the tail. I mean, there's a reason why squirrels are called tree rats. Again, this is how other countries will do subject matter that we would that we think would be done a certain way or use a technique we use a certain way and tell us tell very different kinds of stories. So you get weird results when you bring them to this country, generally. Now, looking at, you know, you look at other kinds of, the other kinds of movies or TV shows that get imported. The, from the UK, Nickelodeon, early on, would import stuff like The Tomorrow People. Yes. Yeah. And we're talking the original 70s series here. And that actually, that actually started their relationship with Roger Price, who was also one of the guys behind You Can't Fit on Television. Mm. So it's a pretty important show in its way for the network. Mm. Or they had a package show called The Third Eye, which would import mostly UK serials with sci-fi themes like Children of the Stones. Yeah, always replacing current grapes with black currants. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's a it's a British Skittles joke, and a lot of candies. Yeah. Um, or, uh, oh, especially in the early episodes of Nick Nicks, you'll find all sorts of interesting series that were important, like New Adventures of Black Beauty. Yeah. When... Yeah. That had a pretty strong VHS presence early on, too. Well, speaking of VHS presence, because I definitely don't recall this ever being on Disney or Nickelodeon, The Bear. That's another example of how something can be giant hit internationally and not really be a thing here. I know it aired on cable, but it wasn't the kind of film that... Nickelodeon or Disney was handled. Well, by no, Nickelodeon. it's it's virtually mute, um, and uh, 
And this is directed by the man who gave us Enemy at the Gate. Which is fun because you can appreciate the cat and mouse. Uh, he does a lot of cat and mouse, um, the metaphor. Jean Chacanon yes. at this point was best known for Quest for Fire. Right. He also did the excellent film adaptation of The Name of the Rose. Yes. Yes, as uh, we learn in Train Spotting. Mm-hmm. So, what are you saying? I'm saying that In the Name of the Rose is something more than a blip on a downward tra- trajectory. What about the Untouchables? I don't read into that. Despite the Academy Award. It's a sympathy award. So, by 2001, I guess we're going with uh, an odds uh, based on the sick boy concept of you have it, you lose it, and then you just can't cut it anymore. That's the grand theory of life. Um, so... Yeah, when I'm thinking about the bear and you bring this up with Disney and Nickelodeon, I think, dude, this is definitely not the Yellowstone Cubs. You see, that's my Disney channel. Watching yeah. these old, man, you guys didn't, you guys didn't put any effort in type <laughs> movies. If you couldn't get Kurt Russell in it, eh, just, just shoot some live action. Okay. We'll work around that. Which does say, though, narration, I don't know if it, like... We could have sold this to kids with Dudley Moore's voice. He was still with us at the time. Well, that, that's an interesting thing. The Bear came out in the, the U.S. in 1989. Yes. After being this giant hit overseas. Right. And it, it did about, you know, $30 million, it says at Wikipedia, in this country. Yeah. That's not bad. No, no, it's... And that was about the same time that we get Adventures of Milo and Otis imported from Japan. Yeah. Edited down from a TV series. There was just something in the air at the time where again suddenly getting a lot of these unusual nature pictures. Which is this is this is really which is really fun because the humane American Humane Association, like well I I know this was shot in Germany and uh, mm-hmm. Austria, yeah. but uh, man, you're not telling me we didn't like the the sheer fact that the film opens with a Winnie the Pooh tribute. You gotta get the H-U-N-N-Y. But the bees. Not the bees. And the bear. Oh, no. And then was the Wicker Man Nicolas Cage tribute to the bear? Um, I'm just, just doing podcast stuff with that stuff. But, so I'm just saying, like, there's no way there weren't harmed animals shooting the bear. Despite the uh, Jim Henson animatronics that were... Featured in it. I imagine that's more dream sequence stuff. Oh, I'm very... With the bear, it's interesting because it isn't that far removed from some of the early Disney stuff, like Bambi in its way. Yes. Oh, no. We we show what should have happened to Winnie the Pooh when he gets his head stuck. Or something like Watership Down, even. Yes. And it's interesting that... In the U.S., we anthropomorphize animals so much, mm-hmm. and internationally, they seem to prefer more realistic xenofiction like this, as it's called. Xenofiction Zeno- is, is, that... is basically, you tell a story from an alien perspective, and that can be an animal, and you're not really trying to apply anthropomorphization so, so much. You're trying to... To so if Walt take did, so of we not should being we should be scared of the Disney company owning 20th Century Fox as we might 
anamorphosize the xenomorphs. Just don't get it, do you? <laughs> no, I've just never, I've never heard heard Zeno, and it Zeno. makes sense. Zeno, Zeno, it makes sense since it's a, a the the ba- the root the root is alien. Yeah. Yes, but when I'm, I just don't, I just don't think of it. Reminds it. Me of how it reminds yeah. me of how originally when Paul Verhoeven was attached to the project, the Disney animated feature Dinosaur mm. was supposed to be more of a Xenofection. Right, no. That it would not have had any dialogue but and would have been a mine. realistic depiction. Then you, yeah. and then you look at Anod's um, filmography again, and you go to um, obviously Quest for Fire mm-hmm. is damn near Zen of fiction in that sense, mm-hmm. and then you go into uh, Enemy at a Gate, which is some re- reason we went to see that movie three times, my friends group in the theater. Mm. Um, it's a beautiful cat and mouse story, like the bear. Um, not, no, not the bear is far superior. Yeah. Which again, the sheer fact that we're talking superiority, it kind of makes me think, dude, this is too smart for kids. <laughs> that's, we do seem to have different, that's in the, but that's an important distinction. When you look at a lot of the international kids entertainment, it can be Japan, it can be the UK, it can be French. I, a lot of Criterion Channel, when they had the Saturday Matinees programming going, they had all sorts of films from other countries. This was, the Bear was one of the films featured. Mm. There were many others featured along similar lines. And what's striking is how many of them really do assume a maturity on the of the intelligence of the, they assume an intelligence and maturity on the part of the kids that American kids entertainment simply does not do. And I think that's one of the things that distinguishes the pre-90s kids entertainment in general from what's come since because you are not trying to cater so much to the kids' interests. Well, no, you're not you're not trying to torture the adults as they get drugged into the movie theater. Well, that, well, that helps. <laughs> but it's it surprises people to learn that something like Doctor Who is considered... It's a family show. It's a kid's show in the United Kingdom. Yes. You're, maybe the contemporary series a bit less so. Right. But the original series was certainly seen regarded and which was why it was also budgeted as children's entertainment Mm. and it doesn't feel like what would the comparison point be in that era it would be to what Sid and Marty Croft were doing in the US like Lamb of the Lost and it does feel like it's working on a whole different level so am I going to get an Adam McKay Doctor Who at some point (laughs) I mean we, we, we got an Adam McKay. Will Ferrell is the doctor. I don't think so. Yeah, I'll make it Danny McKay. <laughs> McDan- yeah, I'll make it Danny McBride as the, as the doctor. even Disney itself, when you look at what they were doing in what's often now referred to as the dark Disney period of the late 70s, early 80s, roughly 
I would say roughly black hole through the return to Oz. Yeah, you may you may want to listen to the uh, screen drafts two part in Disney animation because they really do a good job of trying or uh, they do try to do a good job of um, making uh, making sense of what these generations are. Yeah. In the in the Disney scene. Uh, my only complaint maybe too inclusive. We have a lesbian and two two gay men and a, a mother who do the do this. Yeah, Ryan Marker should have probably been on the uh, been involved just because yes, I'll, he got his heart broken quite a bit during that draft. Because um, nowadays, when you think about um, companies like Disney. Well, it's really the only one where we give this periods. Like, nobody talks about the Dark Warner days. Paramount's a constant shit show. Uh, well, no, I mean, it's been a constant shit show, at least since, you know, oh, we got The Godfather, and now we're going to get a few things, and then, whoa, where, what are we doing? And Lord knows Warner Brothers is like that right now. What? I'm, I'm just saying... Disney, I think, is held at such high regard just because of the sheer image of the man. I don't think it's just that. It's that being the only one of the major studios that chose to do children's entertainment primarily for so long. Okay, that's that's fair. And branching it, they branched out eventually in the 80s with Touchstone like Touchstone and Hollywood pictures. Yes. But they retracted from that too. And oh, now yes. No, once once they do the PG thirteen Disney movie Disney ride. Yeah, it was all over. Yes. But when the when Disney or companies like Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network when they try to kind of uh, rather than talk down to try to challenge their audiences with different themes it's interesting to see how people react and how people handle it because I think of how Cartoon Network and, and Warner Brothers gave up on Infinity Train because that show was based around the idea they were switching protagonists each season mm. using the titular train as the uh, baseline setting. Yeah. And they were, the protagonists were getting steadily older. Mm. And this apparently was a factor in uh, basically being cut off, feeling that this is no longer a show for children. Well, no, and. Um... Really, when it comes to cartoon network, I'd say Nickelodeon. Uh, when a cartoon is really smart, usually adults take it take it over. Anyhow, uh, we're talking Steven Universe, Adventure yes. Time, and that, that SpongeBob SquarePants, and that's something you don't really see in international kids entertainment. No. They don't like Doctor Who. That just becomes a multi generational thing. Yes, but or more culturally loved. It's, um, during the Capaldi years, there, the Barnes and Noble would import, uh, the doc, still imports the main Doctor Who magazine, which these days is primarily for the adult 
side of the fan base. Although it originally started as more, it was just something for kids. Right. It, was, it, it had weekly stuff, and it, it hasn't changed all that much. It's just shifted. Well, it's a print magazine, so it's definitely for old people. But also, in the UK, but along with that magazine, they also had, for a while, a title called Doctor Who Adventures, which was explicitly aimed at the kids' side of the fan base. It's like how we had, you know, like, Disney Princess Magazine or Glowy Magazine or whatever the hot character franchise today is. And it's weird to see that. It's, there's a bit of dissonance seeing that applied to Doctor Who because, especially in the Capaldi seasons, they were dealing with some pretty grim topics. Like, the here's the back cover poster you can put up kids of the uh, horribly burned 12th Doctor <laughs> crawling along the corridor in the climax of Hellbend. Yeah. Fun for kids. No, I mean, couldn't look at worse than anything from uh, Lair of the White Worm. Uh, so... That's true, but... <laughs> It's but, still, you wouldn't see that, you wouldn't see that if it was something Disney was doing. Yeah. Disney's putting money in the show now, but they don't have much influence over yeah. it. Well, and you think about Disney, and then we're kind of trying to, you think, let's, brings me to the bear, which is a story about a little cub who mom gets killed as they're going into, trying to get all that honey, and, uh. So, basically, you've killed Bambi's mom and Winnie the Pooh in one swift go, uh, who's on his own, and in the meantime, you have a big Kodiak bear, who's done a lot of work, Bart, yeah. the, Bart the Bear. Yeah, Bart the Bear's magnum opus. Yes. Um, I read about on Wikipedia how people were trying to get lobby him for best actor in 1989, <laughs> and I think this would be an 88 film, so why the hell not? <laughs> 89 was just a shit Oscars. Um, so, uh, the Kodiak is uh, being, uh, not, you know, doesn't immediately know that he's being hunted by hunters, uh, trophy hunters. And let's, like, again, there's just, how did this get a PG? Let's not just kill Bambi's mom, let's show them skin Bambi's mom. <laughs> Uh, so this is still like, and and parents probably rented this movie for their children. I, I this is all, and that's really all I remember about this movie is that the, the um, I mean I can't say it's controversy, but the fact that uh yeah no this is a beautiful movie don't take your kids. <laughs> yeah, it's a different level of yeah. It is one of those movies that really blurs the line. I mean, and there were a lot of the we have a mercy killing in this movie. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, and, um, the only really thing, and then you get those weird dream sequences. In yeah. It. But the little cub, after the, um, after Bart is shot, the little cub runs into him and eventually starts trying to help clean his wound. Yeah. And they it's form a, they form a bond and mm -hmm. now we're in Brother Bear. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's a, one of the wild things is that you think of all the later kids' movies that basically have surprisingly similar basic rough, rough through lines like yeah. the first ice age uh, the good dinosaur is not that dissimilar well that's that's a kid killing his dad but <laughs> but a little pussy <laughs> it's it's kind of it's wild to see the kind of things that we associate being treated very lightly in american kids entertainment 
but treated in a mature, more adult way by foreign filmmakers. Well, and yeah, but talk about bees again. We have to go into the birds and like. There's a lot of stuff kids should not even. I I, I don't think kids. I am surprised. Kids would be ready for you. Got. You got the little cub tripping on mushrooms at one point. As I say, you got weird dream sequences. Well, Dumbo had, got drunk and hallucinated pink elephants. Yeah, but we all know about pink elephants. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... How many kids know these days about that kind of... Well, play? I'm used to so many like, car dealerships having like deals so crazy and they're having pink elephants around. Like, And then you have to explain to your kid. Yeah, you <laughs> see pink elephants when you drink too much. Then you like so when you watch it's football, also, you get pink elephants. Yeah, but it's interesting. You know, uh, you can do beautiful stuff like that, or have some of the Looney Tune shorts oh, seem a lot more. <laughs> well, I, I I usually associate the Looney Tunes hallucinations of well, you know, there's head trauma involved at some point. Well, Looney Tunes knew more about that, concussions than we did in the 1950s. For that, and that's another thing is how stuff like the Looney Tunes is working. Because they had to be appealing to adults as well as children due to what they were made. Right. That they do seem kind of sophisticated and sometimes saucy in a way that we wouldn't see now. Oh, yeah. and um, Which is... You also even get that with the Muppets to a certain extent. Well, and as I say, you have Jim Henson uh, Creature uh, creature Shop in Jim this Henson's movie. Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Yes. Well, I mean, they're involved in this feature. Yeah. That's uh, what I mean. Yeah. So... Were, but then, you know, they were doing the early Ninja Turtle movies well, true, not but, long afterward. You know, thinking about characters that, uh, well, uh, Bart the Bear has that scene too. So, and I know reading Wikipedia that they were saying, yeah, that was another thing probably more offensive than the tripping, the tripping cub. Um, nope, can't take your kids because you're going to have to have that talk after the movie. And so, but, but you enjoy the movie. Oh, no, it's a, it's a, it's, intense like mm-hmm. i mean it's uh you know it's just um very much like no <laughs> don't take your ki- <laughs> don't take your kids and never mind why did we have to go for that final antagonist like man has been defeated in this feature mm-hmm. so let's throw let's go and blame the cats for stuff <laughs> yes there's a mountain lion chase i'm like yeah, it's a big Kodiak. Yeah, I, 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 but but and it and it's a cute ending, but it's still like, come on, don't don't pick on the kitty. And, but, you look at just how much in a few short years, kids' entertainment really started to retract from anything like this in the U.S. Well, I mean, we weren't getting as much imports of stuff like we weren't, you know. Well, you think had... of all the other kids, crazy kids movies the 80s I can think of. Uh, Rock Demmer, the Canadian Tales for All films, like what? the Peanut Butter Solution, which if you've never seen it, you wouldn't believe me if I tried to explain what the plot was. All right. <laughs> um, but, I mean... Or, co- or um, the canon movie tales. Yes. Well, you're, um, so after this, you're getting into the, um, the 89, you're now into the Disney Renaissance, and I guess that's when Little Mermaid, not so much, and I mean, being the Beast, like, well, we appreciate a smart heroine, uh, mm-hmm. 
too bad it's Stockholm Syndrome. Um, but, uh, um, but the, the movies start getting, trying to get smarter, as they say. Once you have Robin Williams quipping and, like, you know, okay, we gotta make sure the adults are in tune. And then I would say 92, that's, I believe, when Nicktoons kicks off? Oh, the Nicktoons launched in 1991. Okay. Um, 91, you get the Nicktoons, and Rugrats is pretty smart. Doug is, I don't really know who Doug really was for, because I don't know any teenagers watching, watching Nicktoon, Nickelodeon at the time. Besides from my big sister, who just became a teenager. Um, Ren and Stimpy, I think, is... The people who, the, the the series, which is definitely did everything wrong, is the one, is the thing that kind of, like, kind of whipped kids into being a little more aware. Perhaps. And then Rugrats got smarter the, as it went along. Yeah. And Ren and Stimpy got dumber, because, uh, no, we, we can't let the kids know. <laughs> we can't let the kids, we can't have parents doing these explanations. So, I think that's where, where it gets us to. I mean, outside of Disney, what did we have? We had Fern Gully, which is really good. Well, the uh, other thing... And, um, but then you get the lesser Bluth movies uh, and uh, stuff like Once Upon a Forest. And, but... You're forgetting the importance of Home Alone in this equation. Yeah. I think that was a big game changer in what they thought kids wanted to see. You assume the kids like this, so you give them more of that. And this becomes an increasing problem as the decade goes on. Well, the thing with Home Alone is it's not the Goonies where the Goonies... The Goonies has not aged well, but that's just because it was so authentic to the time. Um, which is something with, say, the Goonies that were essentially like trying to create smart children's stories. And then Home Alone is a, not really about being too smart. It's just about brutalizing Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. I don't really see what's smart about the Goonies per se. Well, I mean, the kids the kids have to gather their resources to save the day. Well, yeah, it's a classic hero's journey. Yes, I'm but... just saying we don't we don't really get a I, Home Alone is like he he learns a lesson, but then it's about and now I have to now I have to kick ass. It's like we Home Alone is basically first blood and rambo 2 put in the rambo first blood part 2 put in one movie <laughs> all right and he's learned his lesson and now he must <laughs> and now he must go back and kill the commies <laughs> so um but yeah i'm i'm just saying when i'm bringing up when when we're getting into some alone versus Disney Renaissance and now the intelligence of kids. I'm just saying Goonies like is not like um, what was the Val Kilmer one from that period? Real Geniuses. I think so. Real Genius. Yeah. Yeah, 
which they have a bit about trying to get laid. We didn't really have to worry about that in the Goonies. Yeah. Um, the Goonies is essentially like, and you know, of course, there's knockoffs and everything, and then huh, E.T. Another movie about kids, you know, having to fight the power, public <laughs> public enemy style. Um, and then the '90s, we just don't. I now I'm just kind of like regretting. Oh, the '90s got smarter, and it's like, mm, no, it didn't. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's it's becoming it becomes a lot more about kitty wish fulfillment fantasy. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and that's why I bring up Home Alone. But you also get this with Aladdin. You get this with. Uh, <laughs> well, I'd say the Harry Lion Potter. King, but uh, do we really eventually want to talk, when you talk, go into talk, stuff talk like, about regicide? Yeah, eventually you get into stuff, and especially when you start getting into stuff like Star Wars prequels. Mm. The overlines and IP, and you just don't. And I don't think American Kids Entertainment is fully shook off the '90s trend that you give kids wish fulfillment stories, and you don't. You don't really see kids entertainment in this country that is just about kids having ordinary lives. Probably the closest thing to that that's found a big fan base is the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. Mm. I've seen some of the film adaptations, and none of them quite get what makes the books work, which is that you're you're laughing at the protagonist more than you're going with him. Mm. <laughs> they never. It's it's admittedly a tricky tone to pull off. Mm. But the but that's about as close as you get to entertain kids entertainment that isn't about them turning out to be pop a wizard or a pop star mm. or in social media influencer or a superhero or anything like that. We're reading social media influencer as a quest. Or are you talking about Lizzie 101? Not Lizzie 101. Stuff uh, like iCarly. Yes, shows like that. Well, look, I stand behind iCarly as I'm trying to do my wish fulfillment as being a podcaster. I'm just too lazy to wake up and tape videos for kids before I go to before I go to work. And I think that's one of, and I think maybe one of the reasons we're seeing right now. Post-pandemic, we're seeing the sudden slowdown in franchises like superhero movies and stuff, is that at some point it just got tired to see these kind of stories. Tired to see these kind of stories. I, I don't think that's the case. I just think it's... Um, I think it's just... I don't think it's about being tired. It's just now, after spending two years, 2020, 2021 not doing anything I think we've gotten accustomed to that um if anything Disney Plus should raise the price of their service uh just so people so they can make a little more money when Wish blows up once it makes it onto the service if it's lucky yeah oh it's gonna happen um going back to that Disney draft no Wish haters (laughs) um so that's uh oh so they don't like the movie oh uh, people who've seen it? it people who've seen it have well, i think only like half the panel the uh the drafters had seen it 
Um, but no, they 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 were very positive of it. Then one of the guys at one of the guys said, "Well, hey, do you want to play it? <laughs> you saw it. It counts." Um, and it's like, you know, what would have happened? Because this was discussed in the second half, of, the second part of the draft meeting. And there's just a rule that you don't veto what you haven't seen. Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's an interesting podcast just again, uh, cause Rebecca McKendry, uh, USC professor who based uh, pretty much all her classes seem to be about horror and she's directed movies that you can see on Shudder, like, uh, Glorious, which somehow centers on a glory hole in the voice of, um, Who's the guy who plays J, J, Jonas Jameson? And the peanut M&M? Mm. Uh, J.K. Simmons. <laughs> so, it's a it's a very weird. And it's just like, oh, I guess I actually have to promote my Disney-themed uh, Instagram. Because the horror fans don't like me talking about Disney. Um, yeah, so... But yeah, I don't really, I don't, yeah, as I say, I just think it's people that got, got accustomed to something and they just don't want to put the effort in. I mean, we live in Peoria, Peoria, Illinois, and Champaign, Illinois, respectively. And I don't know, have you been in queues for autographs and such and just can't tolerate the people complaining about the weights and such? Oh, sure. It's like, dude, you would never, have you ever left Chicago land, or you know, I'm just saying, oh, I drove three hours here. It's like, yeah, because all the cool stuff is three hours away. Get a hold of yourself. Well, I don't, people have been saying, uh, why have so many of this year's would be blockbusters, you know, face planted basically? Hey, Napoleon is number one in the world. <laughs> That's and that's just a minor W <laughs> I, I, at this point. I uh, mean, for that kind of a movie, that is probably better than they could have hoped for. I mean, Killers of the Flower Moon's also, you know, kind of... Well, when has there... Plugging away, but they're yeah, not going to be profitable. Well, when has there been a profitable Marty Scorsese movie? Probably Shutter Island, maybe? Yeah, probably that. Yeah. But at the same time, what is it that people are more interested in seeing movies like those, or Oppenheimer, or Barbie, or such, than they are about the Marvels or Wish? Well, Barbie had a built-in audience besides the fans of satire. Your kids are, your little girl is going to make you see Barbie. If you like it or not, um, you know. As for, in, you know, we've pretty much established that not enough people care give a shit about um, Oscar bait. Uh, kill, the killing Scorsese and Scott. And um, and let's just face it, Ridley Scott has to get silly <laughs> to to get people to see his movies. Um, and as I say, wish in the Marvel and Marvels. No, I think it is. I think it is. This is solely the the solely the issue of 
Disney people, the, the pandemic, people got used to just watching my stuff, waiting for it to come to them. Instead of I'm sure effort. that was part of it, but uh, it's not like those other movies aren't going to get to streaming soon enough anyway. Warner Brothers did a whole year when they were just doing day and date releases. Well, yes, but I and mean, people still came out for stuff like Dune. I, you you say that, and I just and I don't, I honestly don't see it because people, more people are going out to see Spider Man, meaning less less screens for Dune. Um. No, I really like. I couldn't tell you many people I know that have seen Dune. Um, and I didn't really have any interest because I haven't seen David Lynch's yet. And, um, yeah, and it's just like, oh, big cast, epic. Nah, ain't my jam. Like, I'm hoping, uh, before this podcast goes up, I can throw a Silent Night review in. That's my jam. Well, you better make it quick. I know. The numbers didn't... Yeah, the numbers weren't good. But what do you expect? Nobody nobody respects John... Like, we had Face Off, and then nobody respected John Moore ever since. Which is kind of like... But uh, I do think... So, that's that's kind of ironic. His biggest... Well, no. I think we... we, Once he nearly killed the Mission Impossible series, then it's like, uh, yeah, let's let's just let this guy stay over in Hong Kong. But it does make you wonder where kids' entertainment is going to go in the next few years. I mean, what are the big kids' franchises right now? It it seems like superheroes are kind of falling out of favor with that set. Again, you see... Possibly because they'd be... Like, stuff like the MCU... There is real no no real entry point for a little kid to get it. Yeah, no, I don't even I don't even look at the MCU as kids entertainment. Right, it re- um, in a sense it really isn't. Yeah, no. When it comes to kids, like I don't, I don't know. Give just get just give us the Bluey movie now, now. <laughs> like you have stuff like popular with kids like Diary of the Wimpy Kid or Bluey or video games like Minecraft, and. There do seem to be kids still interested in stuff like Star Wars, but... Well, it's... I don't know. I mean, and again, we're, we've kind of wrapped this in the bow. We have to go back to those convicts. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist it. I did not mean to offend our Australian audience. Um, well, I meant, I meant a little, like, but it was all it... just... But it's like no, we Bluey is this Bluey is the the savior will be, should be the savior of kids entertainment, and that and that's the thing. It's got to kill the Paw Patrol. That's what I want. Mortal Kombat, Bluey, Ding, Bluey, Bingo, Ma and Pa. But that's the versus thing. What we're seeing now is a bunch of the, these international productions, Bluey being from Australia, or, you know, Japanese productions, like, be it something as simple as Pokemon, mm. well, or like, the Pokemon had stuff it. that's, or One Piece. I, yeah. I, that, that's coming come to this country and appeals to kids and teens. Or, you know, Disney acquiring new Doctor Who, 
and you're seeing all this international stuff coming into the market again in a way that we haven't seen in a long time while Disney's in-house material, if you count counting the stuff like Marvel or Star Wars or Pixar, is looking pretty thin on the table at well, this point. What was the biggest of ever movie? Um, Hunger Mon- Games? Yes, Battle of Songbirds and Snakes looks like it's the most successful of the November releases. Which is a which is still based uh, an entire franchise that ripped off Battle Royale. So, yeah, I, I think we've just come to the conclusion we have to look to foreign lands, steal it, get all the juice we can out of it, and create our own knockoffs of it, and boom, course corrected for good. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we'll be course corrected for a good twenty years. But, well, I guess we'll have to see. Because it is kind of shocking how badly, you know, we're going into the Christmas movie season. Well, I just, again, I, I really just don't think we give a shit about going to the theaters anymore. Like, the concert movie success is, that's basically just because that's the kind of communal yeah. communal opportunities people want. Well, Barbie serves that. For a lot of people. Well, as I say, Barbie Barbie knew, Greta Gertwig knew what she was doing with Barbie. This is something that does not deserve a movie. But, yes, kids are going to, daughters are going to drag their mothers and fathers out to see this. But now I have, so I have a built-in audience, and now let me mess with them. But then you look at, I think Barbie is this kind of, Kind of almost a step above in the way that some of the movies we've discussed today. Well, yes, it's no. It's not really a children's movie. No, no, it, it's it, it's a children's premise. Yeah. And they adultified it. And that's, now honestly, the, I guess the answer, if it's not, take, take, not, if it's not cinematic colonialism, take and rape the foreign markets until we create our own knockoffs. It's uh, let's just give the independent give people like Wes Anderson, uh, Cluedo, yeah, and let him do a Clue movie, or I mean, maybe Kevin Smith should have been given a movie based around He Man and not not just a TV series where because I think we're we are going to have to start going back to more creative driven works well that's what I'm saying and that's going well, to be hard for Disney to course correct in particular I don't necessarily think so um well I don't know they still have Searchlight so they're they're, they're putting money in the, yeah. they're putting money behind stuff uh, like poor things well <laughs> there we go well. goes back goes back to the international side of things with uh, Lathramos yes oh I'm just lucky to say his name right in the first time I think it, I think that's it I mean I love the uh, I've seen I have Dogtooth it's on my Apple TV Rory if you want to go to the Apple TV um, I've seen the Sago Lobster I've seen the favorite mm-hmm. and I've seen a killing of a sacred deer um so, yeah, I'm just saying, again, it's... Because I think it's going to take a few years to reset. Oh. Especially for Disney, because we know that they have very little coming out in 2024 after 
the strike the strikes got a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's. I mean, can they thread the needle with something like Deadpool three? Yeah, that's their only Marvel title next year. Well, I'm more concerned about stuff like, um, like I want the new Ghostbusters to be a success. Yeah. And it looks like it's getting dark this time. Really dark this time. Mm-hmm. Not not just. He slimed me dark. <laughs> like, um, and I, let me, let me ask, speaking of Ghostbusters, I, 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 I don't know if it's worth $50 a bottle, but if you can get it on sale, get Dan Harcourt's Crystal Head Vodka, all his ridiculous advertising for that. I think the guy adver- tried pushing it on the day his brother died on X or Twitter. That is something funny, though. I'm watching uh, the end of NBC News tonight, and they got this, follow us on social, follow us on, follow us, and they mm-hmm. still had the Twitter bird uh-huh. on NB, N, N, NBC mm-hmm. News. Not not that stupid X thing. Uh, and Anna Conover, uh, of Adam Rune and everything, did a great video about, like, uh, people, we, we're kind of stuck with Twitter. Yeah. Because, um... Yeah, so that's but, uh, Dis- but Disney, we know their Pixar's only announced movies for the next few years look to be more sequels because they pushed Elio to 2025. Yeah, wow. And Disney hasn't announced any original projects for their in house animation unit. We know they're doing two more Frozen movies. When, when they, I think, I remember that. It was like the day before or the day of they lifted the embargo on reviews for Wish that Iger, Bob Iger announced they were going to do a fourth Frozen. And I realized, and I had a feeling, oh, it's over for Wish if they had to announce that now. Well, I don't know. I kept seeing stuff for Wish. I kept on getting more, mm-hmm. more impressed by it. It's like, yeah, if I didn't work 52 hours a week... I would, have, I would have gotten around to wish. Well, no. I mean, the star's nice and sassy. Alan Tudyk freaking rocks. But I was listening to song previews and stuff. and uh, This is why I kind of have doubts it's going to blow up on Disney Plus the way Encanto did. Because people loved the Encanto songs. Yeah, and but, these are not the Encanto songs. Right, but that was something brought up uh, again on that, pot, on that screen yeah. drafts. Is, <laughs> there is a... Lin Manuel Miranda backlash towards Wish, as in, no, it's they're they're of these similar like everybody just assumes everything Disney now is Lin. Manuel Miranda pointing out that he did not do the Wish song. I know, but no, they just they're just like, damn you, Lin! I didn't. This one is not mine. Like, I I don't understand the backlash towards Lin. Well, I can see it. I, it's it's more complicated than we can discuss here, but I can see it. But, yeah, I think the thing about Encanto, though, was people latched on to the songs for, and this also happened with Elemental, which is why it clawed its way to being half a success, basically, mm. was that they were really connecting with the storyline. And that doesn't seem to be the case with Wish. Hey. Uh, it goes back it's not to... Some, it's not something people can relate to. Well, and as I say, it goes back to that Disney draft. And as I say, it was a definitely queer-heavy uh, influence on it. Yeah. 
But um, Strange Worlds is on the top 26 uh, definitive Disney Animation Studios best of list. Um, so give it time. It's going to find its audience. And I think that Disney haters are just <laughs> trying to their best to deny that. Well, I, I don't know. Looking at the professional critics review. Oh no, I've seen I've seen the numbers. It's not they're yeah. not great. They're usually a lot easier on these things. I I I but I I have a sense that there is a there is a blowback just because they were trying to make this a big hundred year movie. Well, yeah, it's not so much that, but they didn't put any effort into the one hundred year movie. Like when everybody is. So many reviews saying, I cannot parse how the world building in this movie works. You, you, that is fundamental problems on the script level. Well, I don't know. It goes back, again, it kind of encouraged me to go back to, uh, with Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters Afterlife is nothing but a fan service feature. Uh-huh. We are willing to, um, disband, disband our disbelief. For um, for that, just to get to that. Well. So that's why I'm saying, eh, I think, uh, again, this is, I think, Ghostbusters is something we waited 20 years for. Disney's something we gotta, we have to endure every year. Well, maybe that's it. Maybe this is the best part we can break off on. Yeah, no, we got enough of that, I think. So, uh, of course, you can follow the show on... Uh, Twitter, we're never calling it X here, um, at CatBusRuss. Uh, you can follow more, but if you really want to try putting Elon in his place, follow me on Mastodon at RussStevens at Mastodon.social. It's not as complicated as that sounded. And if you want to be on the podcast, offer me a film, a director, an actor, a theme. Try to focus on sub 100 minute material, but I can make any movie work. So... Um, I don't know, maybe in January we're going to have the Cats episode. It's going to be a marathon, so, but I thought, I've already got that figured out, my part of it. But that's what I'm saying, if you're willing to put the work in, I can make any movie work. Like our last marathon, dedicated to the thing, which is just two minutes too long. It's like, okay, they're done burning the, uh, research center, and they're still, we got still take out two minutes of dialogue, don't we? Darn it. Um, yeah, otherwise, uh, from my front, uh, thank you, Stationary Harden, for looking after my butt and doing your best to push me in the right directions. And I hope you're squeezing the ectoplasm out of the one-eared angel, Skimble Shanks. Uh, the Poetic Critic, you can follow her on Letterboxd. That's The Poetic Critic, all one word. And, you know, she's, a uh, Stepped away from the Musk game, and I don't know. We're just not going to get social unless you follow me on Mastodon, I guess. I hear a lot of things about Discord. Um, friend, friend of the podcast, Sam, yeah, really says, eh, just get a Discord and then make the podcast easier. I don't know. So, do you have anything to push? Any recommendations? No, not right now. Okay, so... That'll do it then for this week, and we will be back uh, next. So this is going to be the December 
fifth episode of Leave. No, it's number six. I'll be back on December 13th, and uh, we'll see where we go from there. I am going to take another week off at some point, so, but you will be warm. Thanks for coming to the 94 Chill the Podcast. Have yourselves a good week. Can I hear a wahoo?